textured book. There are so many questions that arise even right from the introduction. What is God really saying here? What is happening behind the scenes? But we know the basic drama of this. Job has lost all of his possessions. He's lost his family. And finally, he has lost his own physical well-being. He is covered from head to toe with sores. And he is about to talk to God. And his wife comes and gives him some advice in chapter 2 and verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. At this point, he is literally holding on to the slender thread of a totally sovereign God. But what he is agonized with is his theological assumptions. Be good and be blessed. Be bad and be cursed. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music thinkers, and we are the dreamers of dreamers. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, it is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? My fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless greed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. Their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. Be good and be blessed. Be bad and be cursed. He says, all right, God is sovereign. I've received all of this. What I want to know is, why am I receiving it? If I have done wrong, explain it to me, please. David Hume put it in these words. Were a stranger to suddenly drop into this world, I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence. Honestly, I don't see how you can possibly square with an ultimate purpose of love. 
that last line is almost a metaphysical giveaway. I'm not quite sure if Hume really had thought through that very statement because even love needs an ontic referent. It needs some objective definition. And in the naturalistic framework, how do you even assume that love can have a point of reference objectively? But so goes Hume. And he says, I would show a stranger all that's around us. How can there be ultimately a purpose of love? I think it was Camus who said this. It is not science that has led me to doubt the purpose of God. It is the state of this world. It is this pitiless, unending struggle for existence among the nations. It is the collapse of our idealisms before the brute facts of force and chaos. It is the feeling that there is something demonic in the heart of things which is working against us. That there is a radical twist in the very constitution of the universe which will ultimately defeat man's hopes, make havoc of his dreams, and bring his pathetic optimism crashing in disaster purpose, look at the world, that settles it. So what are the two notions they have introduced in their last line? For Hume, it is love. For Camus, as an existential thinker, he's looking for purpose, meaning. And that's really what it is all about, trying to make sense out of it all. One philosopher puts it as a trilemma for Christians and considers it an evidential argument against the existence of God. Not just a uh, question to defend theism, but he says the reality of evil provides evidence against the existence of God. How so? With the trilemma. Christians say God is all-powerful. Christians say God is all-loving, and yet sin exists. That's the trilemma. An all-powerful God, an all-loving God, the reality of evil. And of course, my immediate response when I read that, uh, I think it is Mackey who pr produces that, I say to him, to him, why have you just taken three assumptions of the Christian faith? Why is it not a quadlemma? Why is it not a quintilemma? A quadlemma could say, God is also all wise. Does not the wisdom of God bring in a completely different component to the paradigmatic problem? And God, the fifth one, God lives in eternity. Does not time play a factor here in understanding pain and suffering? If you take a child, it's about a year old, and you take that child to the doctor, and he's about to get jabbed with big needles. My mother is all loving. My mother has the power to either take me into this building or take me out of this building. Why on earth has she taken me into the building where this man is going to jab and hurt me? It takes a few years for the child to find out, ah, now I know. I came, I've come here from Ottawa, Canada, where I spoke at the 50th anniversary of the Canadian Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast, and fantastic gathering. 50 years it's been going. And the night before at the dinner, Dr. Kent Brantley spoke. Some of you may know his name the doctor who contracted Ebola when he was in Africa. It has been seldom that I've heard such a riveting testimony of the power of God in the life of a totally committed man who understood his calling. He's a physician, and there in just somber tones, yet plain speaking language, told of the horror that struck his body. And as he described it, and all that had to be done to him, 
to put him in, in, in the same, to that protective suit and fly him out from there and bring him to Emory. And all that went on to ultimately rid him of that dreaded disease would have taken, that would have taken his life. What if he were a child and you had to explain all that you were doing to that child? Time becomes a component. Understanding becomes a component. To say there's a trilemma is actually trivializing the problem. It is much more complex than just three propositions from the Christian faith. But here it is. Job struggles, and he begins to complain. And the biggest problem he had right in the beginning was his friends. I would never dream of giving my son the name Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. <laughs> they simply don't look good. And the best thing they did was when they sat silent for a few days, just sitting by his bed. The problem began when they opened their mouths. There's a lot going on here. And that's why he even comments on what kind of miserable comforters are you? You boys are supposed to be my friends. Friends should at least try to defang the pain in some way. So the first one, Eliphaz, the oldest, begins with an incredible story. I don't know which church he went to. But he begins by this. He says, A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my face stood up. As soon as he would have begun like that, if I was sitting on an ash pile, I'd say, please, Lord, help me. Where is this boy going? He first, a spirit glided past my face. The hair of my face stood up, and it stood still. But I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be righteous before God? Can a man be pure before his maker. All right, here's Job. You're, you're sitting head to toe with boils, and I come to you and say, I want to tell you something. A spirit glided past my face. The hair on my body just stood up, you know. There was silence, and he probably wished, saying, I wish you'd do the same. And then, <clears throat> then the spirit spoke, can a man be pure before his maker? Can a man be righteous before God? Even if it were true, there's a problem here. I remember uh, my professor of uh, the history of Christian thought in my graduate school days. Some of you may, may know the name, but he had seven earned degrees. Three of them were doctorates, uh, Dr. Montgomery. We used to pray before we went to class because he used to give half of the grade for the questions we asked in class. We'd think up half, sit up half the night thinking up of questions. And uh, then he gave us the exam, and I had a problem. I didn't understand a single of his question. And I kept looking at this saying, what am I going to do? I don't even know what he's asking me for. But the bothersome thing was the guy in the next desk was writing away furiously, hardly breathing between sentences and going on and on and on and on. I said, what's the matter? He's writing, taking more sheets, ripping more sheets, filling out. I've yet to comprehend what he's asking me to write about. So on the day when we got our marks back, I wanted to see what he got. And when Dr. Montgomery handed it back, he looked at his sheet of paper. You know, in, in India, when we grew up and we didn't know the answer to something, we'd write as much as we think was possibly remotely connected to the subject. <laughs> and in the volume of words would be some hint in the direction. We used to call it padding, padding, just pad, you know, just say all that you think needs to be said 
and somewhere you may say what the professor wants to see. Well, he padded it. And Dr. Montgomery, just in red ink, wrote this one line. This is not right. <laughs> this is not even wrong. <laughs> you see, if you say something is right, you're assuming something's been said. If you say something is wrong, again you're assuming something's been said. When it does not even rise to the dignity of an error, that's when you say, this is not even wrong. What do you say to a man like Eliphaz? So Job just comes back and he says this, you know what? A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. Please don't leave me to suffer like this. And then he says, your speeches are heartless. You would even cast, cast lots upon orphans. All right, if I have sinned, tell me why I'm not being pardoned. I won't argue against it. Why am I being punished? Then he comes out with this line, teach me and I will hold my peace. Lead me to understand. So he's, Eliphaz is done with his speech. And then comes Bildad. He's a little more cruel. He calls Job a windbag. And then he says, Enquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and apply myself to that which the fathers have searched out. They shall utter words out of the past. Again, it's good counsel, but it's simply not getting to where Job's at. Enquire of the past. Augustine has written on these issues. Luther has written on these issues. So many great thinkers have written on these issues. Inquire of them what it is they really said. Yes, it helps. One of my professors <clears throat> at Trinity was a man by the name of Feinberg, Dr. Feinberg. His master's thesis, his doctoral dissertation was on the problem of evil and the problem of pain. I quoted him in my book. I had no idea what he, following all of that, went through with his family as his wife contracted a most dreaded disease in which gradually you lose all capacity. And then to their horror, they found, find out <clears throat> that it is passed on from generation to generation. And he became terrified about what his children would face. And Dr. Feinberg said, with all of my reading and all of my knowledge and all of my breadth of understanding, when this news came to me, I was floored. I didn't know where to go with it. And that's the reality. You understand that. I understand that. I've been through some of it myself. And every time it happens, I say, this is hard, Lord. I don't know how I'm going to climb this hill. You understand what's going on? I don't. And so as Bildad says, inquire of the former age, Job's response is this. Look, is his power arbitrary? Does he really at whim inflict this stuff? He says, I don't doubt God's existence. I'm just wondering about his purpose. And then he says, how can I be just before God? He says, why doesn't he just leave me alone? Not bother with me. Why this? And then he comes out with this. Is there an umpire between God and me? 
somebody who can plead my cause before him. And so Eliphaz's speech ends with Job asking for understanding. Now he's coming a little more to a point. He says, I want to know if there's somebody who can stand before God on my behalf and plead my case. Now comes Zophar, the youngest, and he's the rudest. And he goes on to say, you know what, Job? We've really got a problem. It is easier for a donkey to learn wisdom than for us to teach you an idiot. How do we teach you? How are we going to get through to you? And then he says, don't you understand, Job? Your ways are not God's ways. His ways are not yours. Again, it's true. We know that. God's ways are not our ways. Job is just trying to wrestle with purpose, trying to wrestle with representation. And now he comes to a series of questions and he says this. Talk to me, God What have I done? Is there a clue? And then he comes with this statement to his friends, when you boys die, wisdom is going to die with you. You See what's happened? Those who came to help have suddenly become his tormentors because they are missing something very important. I've learned in years of visiting places where an awful lot of pain is being experienced. You're better off remaining silent and just shedding your tears with that individual than saying something that is going to just hurt even more. In the book, I give this illustration. I've had two major back surgeries. If any one of you has lived with major back issues, you know the kind of pain you can have. And for there were days where even after my surgery, I'd be sitting in my car, going to meet my wife or children for dinner, and I'd be sitting there in a parking spot and lean on the steering wheel and just cry. The pain was so agonizing. I have two titanium rods from L3 to S1, four clamps, eight screws bolting me down. I injured it very badly many, many years ago, and all those years went by with a lot of pain. And as I have struggled with that, I've just found out that sometimes all you really need is a helping arm around your shoulder or something during those days. But here's what I want to tell you. I tell this story in my book. After my back surgery, you know, it's a heavy padding they put on there, and um, I, I couldn't move. For about four days, I couldn't move. Actually, that was the second one because the Dura, the lining tore, and uh, trying to mend that was a challenge. And he said, for four days, you can't move. You have to lie totally motionless. He says, if you need to turn, we'll send a couple of nurses, and they will try to turn you together. So I went and uh, lay down, and about two days go by, and I say, I wish I could just lie on my back for a minute or two. You know. So I called uh, an orderly. He brought another man, and they're very skillfully with a sheet under them. They turned me to my side, all for about two, three minutes, and then I had to come back. Middle of the night, I said, I just have to turn. So I called the nurse, and she said, all right, I'll try and turn you. I said, ma'am, it took two pretty tough guys to do it in the afternoon. Can you bring another nurse to help you? You're going to need two. I don't think you can do it all by yourself. She said, no, 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 I'm very experienced. I said, the way they did it, 
it needed two of them to hold a sheet, you know. She said, you know what, I've been a nurse long enough, so I wasn't going to argue. She rammed her hands underneath my back. I will not tell you the thoughts in my mind, but I will tell you that I screamed. And you know what she said? You've had back surgery. I thought you'd come for a hip replacement. The next day when I told the doctor that, I won't tell you what he said. He stormed out of that room because that place could not be touched. You touch a healing wound in a wrong way, you will do greater damage than any intent you may have had in your heart. And I've come to this conclusion, be wise in what you say, when you say it. So, Job comes directly to God. And out of the silence, God answers him. And God asks him 64 questions back to back, which was the last thing Job wanted. He wanted answers. And God, God says, all right, I'll talk to you now like a man. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Were you there when all of the boundaries were set? And on and on and on. A series of questions on the intricacy and the fine-tuning and the majesty of this world. Something like the psalmist said, you know, when I look at the world, the heavens and the work of your hands, the, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is there in man that you shall keep him, that you keep him in mind? The whole fascinating world around us Job, do you really understand all of that? Since you're telling me you will only accept that which you can totally comprehend, let me give you a little test right from the beginning. Tell me how you comprehend this world around you. Do you understand the intricacies of all this? God is opening him up within his own assumptions. When you question a questioner, you determine the entry point of the discussion and you open up the questioner within their own assumptions. That's exactly what God's doing here. Do you really only take all of that which you truly understand? <clears throat> you know, this whole revelation is for God to reveal to Job that he is the creator and the designer. He is the creator and the designer. Now I understand that in our sophistication with a scientific single vision that we want to give to this world, those are two concepts that are not very popular in the scientific world. Even scientists like uh, Vikramasinghe and Hoyle, when they wrote their book Evolution from Space, what did they say? Vikrama Singer from Sri Lanka is a Buddhist, which is a non-theistic religion. Sir Frederick Hoyle was a skeptic, an astronomer. Brilliant minds, brilliant minds. <clears throat> they go on to say the mathematical impossibility of just the protein formation is so astronomical that Hoyle says it boils down and Vikrama Singer, a mathematician, says it is so preposterous given the time to think that all this can come together in just in the protein formation. 
that he would consider it impossible to explain evolution in an earth-bound theory. He's not dispensing with evolution. So what he's saying? He said in an earth-bound theory, there has to be something transcendent from here. That's when they posited the panspermian theory that spores from another planet were brought to seed the earth. Hoyle didn't want to buy that at that time. But Hoyle also accepted it. Francis Crick has accepted it. That spores from another planet. This is the Nobel laureate. He says, maybe in a spaceship or whatever. I, won't even, I, won't, I don't even want to go in that direction. I just want to say to you, we make a mistake when we misposition the idea of evolution as if evolution is pitting itself against creation. It may, it may, and it may not. Evolution to me is a theory of processes. Over a lifetime, all of us change to an extraordinary degree. From a physical perspective, we start off as a little bundle about 50 centimeters high with cherubic features and elastic soft skin. I, I want you to understand that ask yourself at all times what's the reason you're doing or trying to do a same thing you do you do. Why go this far? Why try to learn this much? In the intervening period, every single cell in our body will have been replaced, often many times over. So I mean, think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you fly. That's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week. And will have gone through all kinds of experiences that perhaps leave almost no trace in memory. Remember, if you think that you are wrong, you are. And remember, there's no such thing as bad luck. Only lost opportunities. Never, never, absolutely, absolutely never. never. Show yourself. Who am I? I'm a we carry the same name throughout our lives and consider ourselves as a relatively stable, unitary entity. But is it really right to think of ourselves as the same person? Why try to see it all? Why try to have it all? Why do it? Why learn it? Stay angry. Stay English. A standard assumption is that it's our body that guarantees our personal identity. If you think you are inadequate, you are. Now the chance can change. Process all this information. Let me introduce you to yourself. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.